Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Well, hey, Pastor. Dr. Robin, how does this week find you? You know what? I just, I think I'm getting old. My back is hurting. You think? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My back has been hurting and I can't figure it out. I've been laying on these balls to massage it and um, yeah, I've just been struggling. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, it's not fun. Back pain is one of those pains that just doesn't, it, it makes everything else difficult. So I hear you. I mean, I can I hardly you. sit down and stand up, you know? Oh, that, that, that sounds old. I'm I mean, you. I know, I know I call you grandpa, like, yeah. just because that's my affectionate term yeah. for you, but this week I'm feeling more like a grandpa, but, but, you know, um, this week, I, I think that I have, I finally watched the news last night. Mm. I hadn't had the internet in two days and, um, we hadn't watched the news very much because, well, why would you want to be inundated with the bullshit that's already bringing people down? You know, True. like, so True. we just hadn't been watching the news very much, but I finally watched the news because I heard a clip that the writer for Tucker Carlson had resigned and that there was this racist scandal. So I wanted to watch about that because I feel like everything Fox News does incites um, racism and supremacy mm-hmm. culture. And how could anyone watch that media and not and not see clearly that 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 they are fomenting racism right so i was watching um all in with chris hayes i really like that show mm-hmm. and re- uh, saw the clip about how tucker carlson's speechwriter blake neff resigned amid the scandal well come to find out this guy blake ne- neff was deep into the corners of the interwebs where white supremacy, white supremacists, where they communicate and and whatnot. And I just, you know, this problem of dismantling supremacy culture, it's with our digital technologies too, because our digital technologies are, um, reinscribing oppressive practices in these digital communities. And so it got me just thinking about how do we create just digital communities? How do we create, how do we use technology in a way that creates brave space? How does it create courageous space? So it's just got me thinking about since we're going to be online for the next foreseeable future, how do we really use this technology in a way that is just and right. doesn't capitulate to existing supremacies? 
Yeah, you know, it's a difficult it's a difficult question to ask and it's a hard question to know the answer to, I think, for a couple of reasons. One because in most instances, even when analytics and bots are controlling the programming piece of technology, you know, this is still this is still a medium that is um, run by and structured by human beings, mm-hmm. meaning that our supremacist ideology and and the imprinting that has that has happened to us from you know, the beginning of our, of our lives is going to come into any of that interaction. Right. Right. The the second piece is that, you know, I am becoming increasingly worried about um, the the election and the possibility that our supremacist um, president may not choose to leave office willingly. Right. Um, and with that could come a, a, an overhaul or a, a ceasing of the free internet and, and media as we know it. And, and we could see a complete change in our capacity to interact because um, our ability to organize and our ability to move will be based on our ability to have communication with one another. Right. Right. So I mean, those are two very different concerns and topics that, that surround your, your thinking. Um, but they're related. But because, they're, they are. Yeah. And, and we're, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to keep a, a hopeful optimism that we that this next these next six months will work the way that our albeit supremacist democracy has intended them to work. <laughs> but um, I, I'm worried. I'm worried. Yeah. I am too, and I think the more the more I sink my being into the work, the more I realize um, we've got a long way to go. Yes. Yep, we do. And, and it's incumbent on us as, as, you know, people who have decided to, you know, walk into the water of, of the work to, um, you know, to not, to not be shy about it. We can't, we can't be, um, we can't be worried. Right. Uh, we can't. Right. We can't have fear around it. It's. It's. It's important. Well, today's episode is going to be amazing. I already it's know it. Be amazing. Yes. I, I'm very I don't excited. Even, I don't even have to. I don't even have to wonder. I know it's going to be great. Um, we're really lucky um, that um, theologian, pastor, author. Drew Hart is joining us today. Um, Drew is a, a professor in the Bible and Religion Department at Messiah College, uh, makes his home in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, um, and has really been doing some good, deep theological work around um, untangling these um forces of supremacy culture and whiteness as it relates to um, the church and society. 
Um, and so I'm thrilled to have Drew with us. And Drew, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Uh, thank you. I'm so uh, just excited about uh, joining you all in conversation. And um, you already have sparked my thoughts as you all are talking about uh, just the technology and the potentials for what could come and thinking about the impact that it has for organizers and activists on the ground. That's actually something I haven't thought a lot about that particular angle of things. So, but yeah, I'm really grateful to be in conversation and, um, Robin, I have such great respect for you. And so, um, I was really, uh, just pleased with the invitation to join. Mm. Yeah, you know, uh, I've known Drew since we were together in Kansas City at the Mennonite Conference. Yeah, was that the, the first one? I know it's, we've crossed paths a few times in different yeah. spaces, right? But I, yeah. that's probably the yeah. first time. Yeah, that was the first time. And, you know, really just excited to connect with um, with a brother, you know, who is committed to doing this work. And um you not only write very well, but you have a really great way of explaining the situation that we're in. And, and so I just feel really great that we have a thinker on, a pastor on, and someone who is really good at companioning folks and helping them address white supremacy and the overwhelming whiteness and supremacist ideology that exists in our faith. And so I'm super stoked for this conversation. Can't wait to dig in. And I'm wondering, Drew, if you want to just catch us up to date, what have you been working on? What's your work been like? Um, how's it been in COVID times and all that? Yeah. So I'm just finished my fourth year of teaching at Messiah, which actually Messiah literally just changed their name from Messiah College to Messiah University. So we're all fancy now. But um, yeah, finished teaching there uh, fourth year. And that's been good overall, especially in the classroom. Um, Christian colleges always are a complex spaces. Even some of the so-called better ones are still um can be problematic at times, right, and complicated. Um, but I've enjoyed walking with students in particular in the classroom. It's just been uh, really, actually it's pr provided me joy um, in the classroom walking with students. So it's, mm. it's been kind of neat. I've also been doing a lot of stuff um, in my own community, working with um, leaders here, faith-based organizers in particular. Um, and so that's just been a, a good part of my life that's a little more integrated into, I guess, what I've always believed, but was probably more on the fringe of my life rather than central to it before that. I've been writing, um, finished my second book, which is coming out in September. Um, I have a family and they keep me really busy. I have uh, three boys and they're nine, seven, and three. And so, um, yeah, that's that's a full-time job in and of itself. That's a full-time job. Yeah. It's a full-time job. And our youngest, I don't know what we were thinking, having a third child, man, this, I mean, he's, he, he's, <laughs> he's really cool, but, um, but he's, he's one of those strong willed children that, um, that just demand a little extra time. And so, but he's, Jesus. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always say that God mm -hmm. makes the, the really difficult ones a little extra cute. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But that's been, yeah, that's been really cool. And it's 
because I had um, experience in pastoring before, but I'm not pastoring anymore. Um, it's been interesting um, trying to remain really committed to a local church community and with all the tensions that come with that, mm -hmm. as well as like, as someone who's used to at least having some more say than I normally do, um, learning how to like uh, participate, not as a pastor, but speak into things. And to be fair, I mean, because of who I am and the pastors knowing like I'm a scholar and they knew me even before, um, like I get to speak into things probably disproportionately than I probably should anyway. But, um, right. but, but nonetheless, um, yeah, it, that's just been an interesting journey, but I'm a part of a congregation here in the, it's in Allison Hills, a section in Harrisburg that's poor black and brown neighborhood. And um, this church has just been the most flexible church I've ever been a part of in terms of just journeying, you know? Um, they're very mm -hmm. practice oriented, um, but they're willing to like journey and wrestle. And so anyway, it's just been a neat experience. Um, so those are some of the things, I don't know, that's what came to my mind first, yeah. Well, I'm wondering if you can um, tell us a little bit about some of the work that you do with faith communities, yeah. like your anti-racism work yeah. and how that how that part of your scholarship, because I know that's a big part of your scholarship, how that part of your scholarship emerged yeah. and and, you know, and what ev what's evolving for you there? Yeah. So I guess uh, to tell the story, I mean, it all really begins with me as an undergrad student um, at Messiah, that time Messiah College. And I was a biblical and religious studies major while I was there. And I went there and, you know, was expecting, you know, to enjoy learning and engaging with brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and found um, my peers in particular, um, just so many of them so steeped with racism and it mm. being a really hostile space, not in terms of necessarily always the language, although there was coded stuff, right? Referring to black men as thugs and things like that. You know, sure. there was the coded stuff that was happening, but um, but just the overall- And micro microaggressions. Yeah, microaggressions that were just nonstop, right? Just swimming in yeah. it. Um, and it's in many ways I described that I don't think I was even attuned to really pick it, pick it all up initially when I first got there. But it was over time that it was just like, it was just, you're just swimming in the constant um, racism and racial abuse, really, that it, when you add up all the microaggressions, right, it's literally abuse that people go through. Um, and so trying to figure out like what in the world is going on in this space, like why in a Christian space, right? A space where I'm expecting deeper belonging um, right. is my belonging being um, uh, found on the periphery of the community. And, and so it sent me, that spiraled me into all kinds of questions. And so after I did, I did, I worked in the city, excuse me, I worked in a city and as a youth pastor and an after-school um, program director um, right after college for four years. And the church, it was one of these like multiracial churches that mainly frame their, their work around racial reconciliation, right, as the kind of paradigm that I was a part of. That was my first, you know, entry into China, um, wrestle with these issues and ended up, you know, it was both beautiful and problematic um, what I experienced there um, in terms of just white supremacy still showing up in spaces like multi-ethnic and multi-racial churches. 
then moved back to Philly, um, connected back in the black church, assistant pastor and um, doing my MDiv. And after I finished that, I decided I wanted to do PhD work. And it was precisely out of all those experiences that I wanted to like wrestle with, like, what the heck is going on with the church, you know? And so my dissertation, it was, some of it was influenced by the different traditions now that had shaped me by that point, Black theology and Anabaptism. How could I put them in conversation together to ask questions around the role of Western Christendom and colonialism and white supremacy after that, um, how they've shaped Christian life and, and how do some of these Christian traditions that are born on the underside of that do they give us some insights into how to break free from that? And so those were some really important questions for me. So since um, working at that first, that multiracial church, I had been doing increasingly more and more stuff around anti-racism work with churches. That really got formalized a lot more in like, what was that, 2010, 2011, um, just having more intentional conversations and kind of being seen as a local leader, really very local at that point um, in engaging these conversations. But when I started blogging, honestly, which started during my MDiv period as well, that that also opened up some new windows. And so I started doing more regional stuff. Um, and so when I was in my PhD program, Ferguson broke out, the uprisings were taking place and I'm literally locked away like in books in the library thinking like, what in the world am I doing? Like this, this doesn't seem right. You know, why am mm. I, you know, got my head in the books while my brothers and sisters out in the street, like something just doesn't right. seem right about this. And um, so I actually spoke to a publisher and ended up agreeing to work on a book, um, which ended up being trouble I've seen prior to, um, doing my dissertation, which I, I didn't tell, Robin uh, can tell you this is not proper pro protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't tell my advisor, I didn't tell my committee, I just worked on the book. Um, did that first, then immediately switched over after that to working on the dissertation. It was really just a sense of burden and urgency around wanting churches to engage well. And so I was able to take some of the work that I had already been doing and just threw it into the trouble I've seen um, and kind of, wanted to make, I mean, I know you guys care a lot about stories and ex keeping things accessible and theology and, and activism and all. It's that kind of heart that kind of drove me to want to write Trouble I've Seen and make something available um, where people don't need necessarily degrees to jump in and see how their faith connects to anti-racism right. and justice. Right. And it's right. such a great, it's such a great offering in the world, Drew. I mean, I'm, I read it um, last year and I'm, I'm, still, I still hearken back to, you know, some of the stories that you tell. And um, so folks, if you, if you have not um, taken a look at the trouble I've seen, um, d d take some time to add that to your, to your must read list. It's, it's, it's the perfect, using the word again, accessible resource for you for these days. And don't buy it from Amazon, buy it from Fair, the publisher yes. yeah. or buy it from indiebound.org. And what was that? Now my brain is losing me. You you were talking about being old. I'm feeling old right now. Yeah, yeah. I was going to talk about, because you did ask me also about local faith-based. And so when I moved back to Harrisburg, um, one of the things that came up was that there were a lot of faith leaders, especially um, as Trump came to rise, that were like, 
freaking out, especially white Christian leaders in particular, progressive white Christian leaders were freaking out, um, but they didn't know like what to do. So I ended up being invited in into one conversation and ended up, before I knew it, I was like a co-leader for something happening. Um, but one of the reasons why was because I was pointing them in the direction of like activism and particularly faith-based organizing and asking the question like, who's doing this work already? Um, and so it just so happens that the same time that I moved to from Philly to Harrisburg, that power interfaith was moving and kind of expanding in Pennsylvania, including in central PA. And so mm. um, one of the things that I kind of, turned this group towards was um, let's become a group that is not recreating the wheel, but let's partner and connect churches and leaders with the good stuff that's already happening. And so one of our big uh, partnerships and collaborations have been with Power Interfaith. Um, and so they've been doing, um, yeah, just really great work. It's black leadership, um, but probably the most significant uh, faith-based organizing work that's happening in the state, honestly, though it's certainly concentrated in East Southeastern uh, Pennsylvania. And so, yeah, that, that's been good. And we've done some stuff around um, funding for public education here in particular um, with them, though they do a lot more stuff in Philly. Um, I've also worked with uh, MILPA, which is a group that does work with undocumented um, folks in our community. We have a pretty significant undocumented population here. And so, um, that's just been a really important uh, partnership for us and collaboration point for us. And then um, most recently, I was just invited in and, and we might be able to have some conversation around this, but um, to be a part of a coalition, it's not a faith based group, but a coalition for abolition for police and prisons. And so um, this is new. I mean, this is something I had believed in before, but it's not something I had put any work towards. And so um, it's kind of neat to be um, at the table with some really passionate um, leaders in our city. Yeah, around that. Yeah, that's great. Drew, I'm so thankful that you named the need to um, knit into work that's already being done in communities, especially when it centers around um, black and brown bodies. I mean, I know as a person of color, you are already, um, you know, I mean, that that work might seem very logical for you. But one of the problems that I have seen over and over again, specifically in, you know, our our white spaces of faith is that there's this, you know, desire to um, make everything better and that, the, and they know that they're the ones that can do it best. I mean, you know, supremacy logic, um, rules as king, uh, right. when you, you know, when you've got a bunch of white Christians that, you know, think that they've got the answers to all of the problems, um, for the people that don't look like them. And, you know, I, I don't want to linger on this, but I want to just reinforce for those of you that are listening, you know, this, this, idea of um, doing good work on your own um, or doing work that is burgeoned out of your own ideas um, in spaces that are not yours um, is is problematic and you are always um, in you are always encouraged without question to identify the work that's already being done yeah and 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 ask for permission to enter those spaces as an ally. Um, don't bulldoze your way in. Don't, you know, come in with a, you know, with an understanding of like, you're already here. I'm now, I'm here to help you do this better. Um, but just simply 
ask for permission to be invited in and follow the work of those leaders that are already doing deep and intentional work around black and indigenous bodies. Um, it's, it's critical. And um, again, we don't have to labor over it, but it, it, it bore mentioning because I appreciate the fact that you, that you named it. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially for our group, we have, I mean, we do have um, leaders of color at the table for our, free, it's the group that I'm part of is called free together. And we do have leaders of color, but there's a lot of white progressives at the table. And so we're right now breaking out into like a new format to kind of unleash people to do better work. But there's this danger that I've like, I'm a little worried. And so we're trying to create some mechanisms in place so that even as we unleash people, that there's still always accountability structures in place so that people ain't just right. going wild, doing their own thing, going off their own intuitions. Um, right. And so either like right now we have areas, public education, um, immigration, um, housing, and then this new area around um, policing and, and prisons um, that we're going to have focus groups for. And so at least for the starting point, what we're thinking is either we already have a partnering collaboration with folks, or we're going to have someone, uh, people of color who are directly impacted, who are going to be leading the focus group. One of the two said, there's always some structure in place so people learn how to submit white folk got to learn how to submit and follow and, you know, and come alongside as, you know, accomplices and not just right. Savior. Right. Yeah. Right. Can we can we talk about white progressives for a minute? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Y'all gonna talk about me like I'm not sitting here? <laughs> this is not about you, but this is about the community of white progressives that feel that they have the answer. Yeah, yeah. Which, which right. is part of supremacy culture, right? Yeah. The, the 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 ways in which white progressives, white liberal progressives, move in the world. Mm -hmm it makes me feel like they are very dangerous. Yes, yes, yes. And and what, like, for the white progressives who are listening, this is not an attack, but this is an invitation to think a little bit more critically about your behavior in movement spaces and and your desire to do the right thing. Drew, can you, can you help our listeners, and we can be in conversation about this so that you're not doing all the labor, um, can you help our listeners know what are maybe three things that they could do um, in addition to following leadership and whatnot that they can help them reframe their orientation out of whiteness and into a more communal orientation? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is, I remember I was giving a talk to a progressive Mennonite church once. And then afterwards we had Q and A. And one of the questions was, they said, oh, so what do you say when you go speak to white conservative churches? That's literally what was asked. So I said, I told them about the same white supremacy I just taught you, right? And, um, and what, what fascinates me about that moment was they seem to imagine themselves as outside of the problem. Right. Mm, they start right, to imagine right. themselves as not complicit in white supremacy. And so um, it's 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 it is dangerous when when they just think that Fox News is the only problem and that they're somehow right. not like caught up 
and performing whiteness themselves. And so, and, and, and let's go one step further. And this is one of the dangers I think of our moments of having like just a couple select, we'll call them celebrity, celebrity anti-racist figures that everyone's kind of clinging to right now, instead of reading like the a whole chorus of folks, right? Like Kendi's work, I think, mm, right. um, I love Kendi's work. There's a simplicity to it that helps people think in different ways that I can appreciate. But I, I worry about um, white, concert, white progressives in particular um, clinging to racism um, in terms of a pol- policy-centric definition of it and thinking that the problem is just out there. We just need to change these policies rather than that they need right. to undergo radical transformation as people and communities in their own way of life, that, right. that something radically needs to change in that space. And so I think that, yeah, their own imagination in white supremacy needs to change and then a commitment to do the, their own self-examination work um, in their own lives and commit to doing that with their neighbors and holding other people accountable. Like all these things are really important yeah. that, um, and being willing to become, to, to be mentored by in some ways, people of color, right. Yeah. Submitting to yeah. uh, yielding to, um, the work that's already happening. You know, what you, what you bring up is something that I think the activist theology project is rooted in, which is reframing relationship. And when we reframe and reorient relationship into, into one that is not hierarchical, mm-hmm. but one that is, is about radical equity and liberation, yeah. um, our behavior changes. Yeah, that's right. And, and so every week, the Activist Theology Project has been going through the pillars of white supremacy because we are a, a, an all-white team, with the exception of myself being the only person of yep. color. But who is a white Latinx, right? I have I, I pass as white, and so together we have been working through the pillars of white supremacy so that we can model a different kind of relationship, which is what we're asking other people to do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and, and you you just made me think about um, the other thing that that I ask, and this is for all white people, um, in terms of how people tell their story, like telling truthful stories is really important. I've been, um, and maybe this also goes to the whole Kendi thing, like the what's that layer right above policy and institutions, which is culture and narratives, myths that drive and orient people and shape sense of being in the right. world, right? Um, and I think it's really right. important to not miss that aspect also that, um, I mean, that's some people, there's no, it's not a surprise. I mean, people still ask like, why do people get so freaked out when um, Kaepernick kneeled and things like that? But like American exceptionalism is a stri- really powerful narrative that yeah. upholds and bolsters white supremacy. And so yeah. yes. like we've got to, how people tell these grand stories, but even just their their family stories, like how they came here and to tell it in truthful ways. Like I always tell people, um, there's, there's white ways of telling your story. And then there's ways that will build solidarity with others. If you're truthful about the nuances of your story. And it doesn't matter if like for a white person, if they, let's say have family that was slaveholders, or if they come and they were like coming from Ireland and, and their people were oppressed by the British. Like there's, there's a white way to tell those stories. And then there's a way that, um, is more truthful and difficult that, um, brings and brings to bear solidarity. And so like, 
uh, a white way might be like, yeah, everyone's seen the memes on Facebook with the, right? Oh, Irish were enslaved just like black people were, like all these things that distort history. Um, (laughs) But a more beautiful way is to acknowledge the ways in which they have been on the underside of empire in their homelands and also the complex ways in which um, folks sought to assimilate into whiteness here in this space, right? And there's the complexity of that that can actually build solidarity when we name both the where you've come from, but also the complex ways that we navigate our society today. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, I, I just think that, yeah, all of that is really powerful. You know, um, when I when I first got to know you, it was really through Twitter yeah. and and really this movement of Anabaptist theology and black yeah. theology. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, because that's that's going to be new for our yeah. listeners. Um, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about those intersections and why you find them important. Yeah, I, I'm so quirky. I always tell people <laughs> um, that I, and it's kind of random. It's, it, you know, I had no idea what Anabaptism was growing up. Like I'd never heard of it until I went to college. Um, but M- Messiah College was um, founded by the Brethren in Christ, which was a break off of the Mennonites in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of like uh, Anabaptism, Wesleyanism, and Pietism all mixed together. That's the tradition. So I spent a little time with that. And then when I came back to Philly, um, and I should say, I didn't consider myself Anabaptist at all while I was in college or even when I was at the youth pastor at the Brethren Christ Church, this multiracial church. But when I came back to Philly, I began to notice that um, I had been shaped by these things. And I wanted to be honest about that. So I started calling myself Anabaptist when I was no longer connected to Anabaptist at all. Um, but then shortly after that, I start connecting in Philly. There's like this amazing Anabaptist community. You've got like third generation black Mennonites. You've got Latinx communities. You've got affirming Mennonite communities that have been kicked out of the denomination. You have this, the largest um, uh, Mennonite and Anabaptist church period in the, in Philly is a, is a, predominantly Asian and mostly uh, Indonesian community in South Philly. Like, it's just really oh, interesting. Wow. There's one community of uh, friends of mine, um, their communities, Heart of North Philly, and about 75% of their uh, members are returning citizens from prison, right? I mean, it's just different kinds of, so my experience all of a sudden with Anabaptism just meant something completely different than what I had known it to be just thinking about white Anabaptists, whether it be the traditional denominations or even like the, we call like the celebrity neo-Anabaptists that are kind of well-known, white neo-Anabaptists, right? That this was something else that was happening that was really compelling um, because they were expressing it. They they had, they felt comfortable uh, making it their own, that they weren't being controlled and being defined by how other people define Anabaptism, but they took this tradition in the, the essence of, you know, really taking Jesus seriously um, in terms of praxis and way of life, um, and, and they mm-hmm. took that and married it with, you know, again, black church cultures, Latinx X culture, just really cool stuff happening anyway. So that was really influential for me. And that honestly also played into me wanting to do the dissertation work that I would end up doing also. Um, and so, yeah, you have Anabaptism that's born on the underside of Christendom, uh, and literally it's a lot of what's happening is almost simultaneous to the violence that's happening to 
uh, black and brown people all around the world, right? As colonialism is birthing. I mean, it's literally in the 16th century, early 16th century, um, that the Anabaptists um, take their radical reformation move and break from even the reformers in terms of what they believe is necessary. And a lot of it, which gets downplayed again by white Anabaptists, but what's really beautiful is uh, their relationship to the poor peasant rebellions that are taking place, the economic um, critiques that they were making at this time. Um, there's similarities actually between the uh, the poor peasants like demands and like some of the points that the early Anabaptists are making. There's actually overlaps of some of the uh, these ideas. Mm. And so this movement uh, from the underside that's breaking from the church state relationships, breaking from the kind of top down coercive Christianity and trying to recover for themselves uh, what it meant to be followers of Jesus on the ground is just really powerful story for me um, to think about. And, and to, I mean, some of the story, I mean, so I, you know, you grew up hearing about black church stealing away and hiding outside the watchful eye of the mass, but Anabaptists were also doing the same thing. Um, so just really fascinating, <laughs> right? But at the same time, like the Anabaptists, I would argue that traditionally Eurocentric Anabaptist articulations of their tradition they stop short of going all the way in terms of the full critique. So they talk about Christendom, but then they fail to make the, the colonial critique, the white supremacist critique, which I would say is the inevitable mm. outcome if you follow it all the way, um, that that's where it goes, right? right? Um, because literally Christian supremacy birthed white supremacy into the world. And so you've got to right. go all the way, otherwise you're stopping short. So it's half a critique often. And so with that half critique, I found, I mean, for me, James Cone was the first one that really just opened up my world um, and forced me to do like just uh, in some ways he, he was able to both like resonate with my lived experience and just open me up to a new theological conversation all at the same time. Um, and it was just so liberating for me. And so um, that opened the door to me engaging other black and womanist theologians and even just taking more seriously the broader black prophetic tradition. Um, certainly Dr. King and his work um, has been influential for me. Um, and so all of that, like, how can I bring these two together in a creative exchange with one another? How can these two traditions inform my own understanding of what radical discipleship looks like on the ground, my own understanding of prophetic witness, my own understanding of solidarity with those who are oppressed. Um, and so in many ways, they often provide a double critique for me of Christendom and white supremacy um, mm -hmm. and the different ways. Um, and knowing that there are limits, every, every tradition has its limits and its areas where they're not seeing fully. And so uh, and I would argue that while I certainly have camped myself mostly in um, those spaces of black church spaces and Anabaptist spaces. There are other traditions, right, that were born on the underside that are really important to um, and um, that are important to me, though they haven't been as formative for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering, where do you sit with the with the word or the term evangelical? What, what relationship do you have with that word? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So I don't call myself evangelical, um, but I also have kind of chosen to like, like I am in close proximity, right? And in some ways, the, the black church that I grew up in, um, it didn't use the word evangelical, but I would, you could argue that in some ways, at least on the theological side of things, that it was evangelical. And so there's ways in which, and I'd also say like Anabaptism it has a certain proximity that's sometimes aspects of it that have some proximity right. also to evangelicalism, right? 
Right. Um, um, again, theologically, though it's also some real serious critiques as well. And so, so because of that in the work that I do as a professor, like I haven't, um, I haven't like dis like some people are like running from the word. I don't do that, but I also don't claim the word. Yeah. It's, it's not a meaningful way to describe. I think that evangelicalism as a movement, honestly, is morally <laughs> bankrupt. Um, and and I think if we're really honest, it probably is more of a politic than a theology anyway. Um, but um, but I know that it's more complex than that, and I have I do have friends who you know black evangelicals who consider themselves i mean that's not as popular these days but i knew some people who still want to hold on the term and say oh we're not going to let white people define this term for us and so i respect for them that they if they want that's the direction they want to go um that's fine but i do want i i do feel like i have an opportunity to dialogue well with evangelicals, at least some segments. I mean, there's some folks who don't, would never talk to me, but like, I think about like in the classroom yeah. at Messiah, like the majority of my students are coming from conservative evangelical spaces. Like that's the majority of them. Yeah. And yet it's like, yeah. I'm able to like, you know, I got them reading Kelly Brown Douglas and James Cohen and stuff. And I've had good experiences right, right. doing so, right? Um, because they have like yeah. this, a semester with them to kind of walk with them all the way through. And so, I um, I contributed a chapter to now I'm blanking on the name of it. Evangelical theology of liberation and justice. That's what it was called. It was like a whole collection. And I told uh, Andrea Smith, if that, you know her, um, yeah. I told her, you know, like I don't identify as evangelical, but I dialogue with evangelicals, and I'm certainly willing to contribute to this thing if that's okay. And she said, yeah, that's fine. And so I was like, so I don't, I'm not necessarily worried about the stigma. Like sometimes um, people worried about the stigma. For me, I don't really care, but that's not necessarily the word that I use to describe myself. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm trying to reclaim it. Yeah. Just because I don't want it to, like, I don't believe that term belongs to the toxic communities that have made it into what it is. This sort of, yeah, what it is, this sort of institutional, corporate um, commodity, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I always give the example that in Latin America, if you're a Christian, you don't call yourself Christian. You call yourself evangelical. Right. And, right, right. and so how can we begin to reclaim language and reimagine language for a, for a better use of it? So I just I wonder about your relationship to the word. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. So I. I, I agree. And I, honestly, everywhere around the world, like evangelical is a term that's used all over the place and it means something very different everywhere yeah. but in the United yes. States, right? Yeah. Um, so it certainly has been co-opted here in a particular way um, that is harmful, has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus and his right. kingdom. There's nothing to do with it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I resonate with that desire. I also, I don't know, sometimes I just like, is it possible? Is it like, I don't know, maybe I'm too pessimistic, um, but to like really like just the amount of inertia behind how that word has yeah. been used. Yeah, I um, feel it. Yeah. It takes a lot of intentionality to, yeah. to re redefine what that word means um, mm -hmm. for our context. Yeah. Well, because now there's a whole movement of ex-evangelical. Right, right. As a sort of disidentification of evangelical, right? Right, so, right. But 
Right. Which I, I'm not, I, I also feel like that's lazy and I, hopefully I'm not offending listeners when I say that, but, but it does, I don't know. It's, I, I guess maybe for me, um, I like to think about like, how do we grapple? And this, maybe this goes with the telling our truthful stories, right? Um, it's too simplistic of a move to just sever ties and not to grapple with our story and what has shaped us in really profound ways. Right. Um, because we don't really just let go of things. Um, you're not just over things because you find something problematic. And so I feel like deeper work is how do we lean into and kind of sort through the mess, right? right. In really powerful ways. So I sometimes worry that when we just at least in our minds, imagine just severing ourselves from a tradition that we're kind of deceiving ourselves in terms of the ways that we're formed in the world and the harder work it takes to actually mm -hmm. kind of reorient ourselves. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. No, I feel you. So I'd love to, I'd love to take that a, a, a step deeper, Drew, if you're willing, you know, this, this, yeah. this understanding that all of us, regardless of the place we find our um, selves from a, you know, a decolonization, uh, you know, anti-supremist, anti-racist um, posture, all of us have this deep work and this uh, introspection and, and true soul and heart and mind work to do. I would also surmise, and I, I think all of you would agree with me, that the church um, has that same work to do. Yeah. As we're looking at the times that we find ourselves in, you know, today, um, in real time, middle of July, 2020, um, you know, a, a month and a half post murder of George Floyd, which, you know, I, I, I name him because it was his murder that, you know, set forth a, a catalyst and, and a movement of sorts that um, hasn't died down um, as quickly as other movements have. But how do, how do we either encourage or um, hold accountable um, the church, as well as those of us that identify as members of the church, the capital C church, to do that same kind of deep work of introspection and uncoupling from supremacist and racist and uh, colonial um, attitude and concept based on where we find ourselves today. Yeah, I mean... This is such a good question. And I think, you know, there's deep, deep denial happening in the church around sure. racism. It's sure. just, um, and so there's a way in which even right now, as people are so-called awakening right to our moment, um, that somehow the church is now able to, we're going to ride in and we're going to be the answer to the solution. <laughs> and and the funny thing is I like, they don't realize like the church created all this mess. Correct. Like, this is, you know, this is not like, it's almost like I, when I tell people about um, like what drives me crazy about when um, Americans and other Europeans go to like Haiti for service or something, I'm like, wait a minute, like y'all created the mess and now you want to go serve. Um, 
like it's just ridiculous, right? Yes. When you create the mess and then somehow um, out of your abundance, want to just give a little back and, 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 and feel good about yourselves rather than like we need radical redistribution and restructuring of everything that we do to make right what we've done. Um, right. And so there's a, a way in which we haven't grappled and internalized the devastation that the church has caused, the Western church and Western Europeans in general have caused all around the world. Um, and and have literally, like I said before, Christian supremacy birthed white supremacy into the world. Um, that white supremacy is not first a social problem, it's a theological distortion first. Mm. Um, it's an idolatry, right, that was created that, that deems white people um, be ha having the right to inherit the earth, right? To plunder resources and lands and to dominate peoples. Um, and so, yeah, we've, we've got to grapple with that and do some serious, serious soul searching as Christians in particular. And I say Christians in particular, um, in the broadest sense that this does not, um, stop only with white Christians. Like all of us have to grapple with the ways that, um, Jesus and God and what it means to be community. All these things have been refashioned in the white sure. supremacist context, right? Um, and I do think like all people of all people of color in different contexts have all wrestled with it in some degree, just by nature of trying to survive. They've had sure. to, but there's deeper ways in which I think we've all got to grapple with how white supremacy has shaped our understanding of our faith. Um, but yes. certainly for white Christians especially right um the whole thing is it's drenched in white supremacy yeah. and that's going to require going through with a, a fine comb um and and everything's got to be on the table for reckoning with in terms of the pra christian christendom practices and white supremacist practices that have shaped the church i know recently people are talking about like white jesus um which i'm all on board for bringing down white jesus but i think the harder work will be is not just the images, but it's the way that people literally worship a whitens Jesus, like right. a, a, a mascot of the status quo and yes. social domination. Like that's the issue. That's the harder work um, that's going to, again, take that soul searching that you're talking about. So, yeah, it's important. Well, well and, and to think about not just white Jesus, but we have built, we as in all of us, because we're all conscripted into this supremacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we have created a white God, which is yeah. what makes yeah. James Cone's assertion, God is black, right. so powerful and prophetic because even our imagination of God is a God of whiteness. That's right. Yeah. It's it, the whole, th and I, I'm not sure. I mean, so you think about all these churches now, they want to read some anti-racism, this or that or whatever. Right. But I don't know how many want to go there, right? How many right. want to go there um, and grapple with, because, and, and I get it, like these are sensitive things. When you talk about matters of faith, this is very personal, this sense of yes. identity, this yes. is sacred, this is not like fluffy stuff. And so it can be very painful and hard and difficult, but if we're not willing to enter into the pain and suffering of others, um, then we're not really going to really do the real anti-racism work that's necessary that's for our right. time. Right. That's right. And so Drew, do you have uh, an optimism or a hopefulness within you that this is possible for the church? Hmm. Uh, optimism, <laughs> probably not an optimism. Okay. Um, but I mean, I think I'm with I you say, on that. I just, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
I do think though, all right, so I, like I'm one of those folks that think about hope in terms of practice, right? Mm, yes. um, the hope is not something that, that you just, you know, have in the abstract, but it's like something you embody and live. And so we can be the hope. Yes. Um, and I think that, that to the degree that we can be the hope that we can find new ways of living and interacting and, and forming community and, um, striving for another world, right. For God's dream for us. I think that to that degree, you know, hope exists and it inspires others. Um, I don't imagine that right now, the majority of folks who are having their chats, you know, their race chats for the first time, they're not going that deep. Um, and I think that when the, the whirlwind is over and things die down, not that the, I think something good has happened that I won't dismiss that right in our moments, but, um, but then we'll see beyond that who's embodying hope and who's doing the ongoing work. Um, that's, what's really going to matter. And I'm hoping, um, and this is you hoping the other way, desiring that that more people will choose to be sustained and active um, in their local communities, um, fighting and struggling with those who are oppressed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I almost see this work as um, being um, kind of like um, a crack in a foundation. You know, all of us have the capacity in times like this to find or, or to be cracked a little in our belief systems, um, whether it's through the reading of something that is, you know, not familiar to us or the relationship we may find with another person that is unlike us. Um, our, our practice has been to repair that crack. Um, the, in the same way that we would repair a foundational crack in a home. If you don't repair the crack, the home has the chance to fall down, to collapse. Um, mm -hmm. I think we have to be willing to allow those cracks to grow and to not, um, you know, to, for us to not seek to either repair them or ignore them in hopes that uh, nothing else, nothing else within us falters because it will require the demolition or the the um, collapse of ourselves, of our understandings, yeah. of the culture that we've been, um, you know, ascribed to, in order for us to find a place where we can rebuild and reconstruct yeah. an imagination that is free from um, racism and free from supremacist ideology. Um, and I, I, I'm with you. I, I. Whenever I, I talk with my um, small group, I have a, I, I'm one of those, you know, non-pastors that still gets to, you know, pastor in some small ways in the congregation I'm a part of. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I have a small group who is, is, do, is doing exactly what you said, reading um, books that, you know, that, that are hard for them and, and, in, and hearing things that some of them have only heard for the first time. Um, I, I want them to continue to feel cracked open. I want them to continue yeah. to feel as if there is a, that all of them is breaking apart and, and, and cracking away. Um, mm -hmm. because yes. without that, without that, you know, act full removal of our shells, um, it's, you know, I, I don't know that, I don't know that I am at all hopeful, um, mm. of, yeah. of, of what could be. Well, I love it. Good. 
I am so grateful, Drew, that you uh, took the time to be with us, to, to share the work you're doing in the world, to think with Robin and I, and to be a part of this conversation. Um, I'd love for you to share with folks how they can be in touch with you or how they can follow you um, in the world. Uh, what's the best way for them to, to, to get in touch? Yeah, um, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter, D-R-U-H-A-R-T, Drew Hart. Um, same thing with Instagram, and I have a Facebook page. Um, if you want to um, keep up with my writing, so my first book that came out in 2016 is called Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. But I have a new one coming out September 1st, and it's called Who Will Be a Witness? With a question mark. And then subtitle is Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. <sighs> So and, excited. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really excited about that one. Um, and it'll, similar to the first one, I, I share a lot of personal stories. Um, but I, in fact, just to share real quick, like the book came out of talking to churches around the first one and them like, all right, you want us to do racial justice? And we have no idea what that means, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that was kind of the inspiration for writing. Although I ended up doing a lot more of that. Like I do, do a lot of like radical discipleship stuff around just the revolutionary Jesus. Like we just, we just got to undomesticate Jesus. I think that's so yes. important. Um, and some history work, some of that stuff around Christian supremacy and white supremacy. And anyway, I just dig deeper and then, but do get specific um, towards the end around um, organizing, um, organizing theory, movement theory, nonviolence theory, getting a little electoral politics, all that kind of stuff, just very practical stuff to get um, churches yeah. thinking and going. So, yeah. And, and tell us who published Trouble I've Seen. Um, both of them are, are published by Herald Press. Both Herald Press. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. buy the books from the publisher. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, Robin, another good one. Another good one for the books. This yeah. one was, I mean, thank you, Drew, for coming on and sharing with us and helping us create the kind of world we long to see. No, thank you. This has been holy conversation. I've really yes. enjoyed this. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, friends, until next week, um, think about the ways that you're going to get your hands dirty. How are you going to move and breathe and be in the world um, in a way that continues to let yourself crack open? And we'll keep doing the work on our end, and we know you'll keep doing the work on yours. Dr. Robin? Let's get free. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, Activist and Theology, share a tea. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs>